Many years ago now, I was a student at Princeton Seminary in New Jersey, and one of the memories that is most incandescent from that particular period of my life was the chance to take part in the annual Paschal Vigil, the annual Easter Vigil that was put on on the seminary campus. It was a really remarkable multimedia experience. Uh, it was a celebration that involved um, dance and music and spoken word and poetry and art of many, many different kinds. And um, it wasn't something you sat at and watched. It was something you participated in actively because in the course of this, this vigil that took place over many, many hours and thousands of people came to it from all over the state of New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania and, and New York, you would actually move around the campus and at different stations be introduced to some element, some expression or reproduction of, of a critical moment in what theologians call salvation history. The history of how God had moved powerfully in time and uh, among people. So as you went along this particular journey, you might um, pass by a a whole group of women that were uh, singing of the trials of slavery in Egypt. And you'd remember the time when God's people were in bondage and, and be connected to all of the other times when people have been held in bondage and God has longed to set them free. Or you'd move on down the path and, and, and you'd be going along when all of a sudden you would hear uh, a voice crying out and you'd look up and there on top of the roof uh, there was uh, standing someone in a robe and holding a flaming torch and, and they're haranguing down at you and you realize that you're listening to the voice of the prophet Isaiah uh, challenging you as once he had challenged the people of Israel. Or, or perhaps you'd hear the, the voice that, uh, saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation, and your eyes would turn up to the source of that voice, and you would see up on a balcony of one of the dormitory buildings, uh, seated, uh, illuminated from behind the silhouette of the Apostle Paul writing a letter from prison behind bars. All through this journey, you would be led uh, along with all of these other people by a drummer. A and the drummer who headed up this procession had begun playing at the very beginning of the vigil uh, when the first act of the great drama of God's work in history, the, the creation, was being expressed. And as the voice cried out, let there be light, the drum picked up, let there be light. Bump, 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 bump. And that uh, drum would lead us on uh, the great journey that wound its way all around the campus. Uh, the sound of the drum would grow stronger and softer at certain times. It, it grew stronger as we marched uh, out of Egypt from the Exodus and towards the Promised Land. Uh, it got quieter during the time of the wilderness there. Uh, the drum beat seemed to fade away as we uh, went into periods of time when uh, the people of God uh, grew distant from uh, the Lord and uh, entered into periods of disobedience and then were exiled. And then the sound came back again in a powerful way uh, in syncopation with the, the blows of a hammer driving nails into the cross. And, and as we traced our way through 
uh, Christian history, as we walk through literally 1,500 years of church history, passing displays that depicted uh, many of the kinds of events and themes that we talked about last week uh, in my uh, historical discourse, uh, as some of you will remember, as we trace the heroics of the church and the contributions that went on in the church, but also the great misadventures of the church, the errors and the distortions that happened over time, our path as a people would, would start to become more meandering. And actually, the drummer would lead us off the path. We'd be off the sidewalk. We'd be walking across the grass and among the trees at times. And the further along we went, the further out we got until we were so far away from the great uh, chapel where the whole journey had begun, that had this place of light and life. We were now wandering out in the edge of the campus to the point where you're thinking, where, where are we going? Is this, is this guy lost? We were thinking to ourselves. And um, all of a sudden, the, the, the drumbeat, which had become progressively erratic and softer, stopped completely and the procession stopped completely, and we just waited there in the shadow lands at the edge of the campus. And then all of a sudden, a sound rang out. A pounding sound ran out, mighty rhythmic pounding. And we all turned our gaze to find its source, and there up on a hill we saw it. There was a spotlight in, uh, illuminating the front of one of the largest big stone buildings, and we saw there the figure of Martin Luther pounding into the door of the Wittenberg Church, the 95 Theses, the great objections that he had to the course of the church at this particular moment in history. And all of a sudden, the drum that had grown silent, began to echo the pounding of those uh, convictions, the great solas, the great uh, Christian convictions that we're going to be studying today. And as the drumbeat picked up, uh, the procession suddenly turned, and now the great parade turned out of the shadows and made its way back on the path towards the light. I will never forget the experience. I hope you've been brought into it yourself this morning. Because this is our journey as the church of Jesus. This is the journey of the disciples of Jesus in every time. Finding our way back to God's path. Long ago, the psalmist wrote a parade of prose, 176 verses long, the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. And it was devoted to the vital importance of living our own personal lives by the light of the Word of God. And I want to read from just a, a brief part of Psalm 119. The psalmist says, I gain understanding from your precepts, Lord. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. I hate it when I get off the path, when I lose my way. I love your precepts. For your word is a lamp for my feet and a light upon my path. Those words were written by the psalmist during a golden age in the history of Israel when David was leading the people of God according to 
the scriptures according to God's revelations. And, and guided by those precepts, Israel enjoyed a wonderful season of life and growth and national vitality, but the people of God in time wandered from the path. David himself left the path, uh, became ensnared in, a, in a, a devastating relationship that would wreck his family and, and uh, lead astray the, the people of the nation. Uh, and ultimately, the decline of the nation's moral vision, beginning in the in the Oval Office, in a sense, of that nation, led uh, Israel into a cascading set of calamities that over the next several hundred years would lead to the ruin and really the, the dissolution of the nation of Israel as we knew it. And uh, in that period of time, as things were coming to an end in Israel's national life, the shadows descending now upon Israel, the prophet Isaiah hammered out a warning himself. He was the Martin Luther in a sense of his time. And he said, consult God's instruction. Speaking to the nation, he said, we must consult God's instruction again. For if anyone does not speak according to this word, according to God's word, they have no light of dawn to offer us. They're not leading us into any kind of hopeful new day. The Protestant Reformation was a similar moment in the life of the church. It was a call to the Christian movement to turn its course and to return to God's instructions. Jesus himself had once said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus has gone on to say in his famous Sermon on the Mount that everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, actually does them, is like a wise person who built his house upon the rock. Anybody that builds their life upon the word of God, Jesus is saying, is a person that can face storms. And storms will come no matter where you live. You don't have to live in the south of Florida or the west coast or Mexico or any of the places where we see the storms unfolding. To face storms in life, we'll all face them. Some of you are facing them right now. We all face the storms of many kinds. And it's when we're rooted deeply in Christ, in the word of God, that we find the help, the assurance, the guidance that we need to weather those storms. And so pastors like Martin Luther in Germany and uh, John Calvin in Switzerland and many others at this period in history in the 16th century uh, start contending that the church and the culture as a whole has lost its way because of its ignorance of the word of God. By the 16th century, the leadership of the Christian church um, had uh, redefined its understanding of the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God was understood to be, at this point, uh, Scripture plus. It was um, the, the, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments plus the, the teachings of church leaders that had come in the apostolic line of succession from the Apostle Peter. Uh, so popes, church councils, others that offered opinions about uh, what it meant to live the life of the church and the Christian life were regarded as having equal authority with the words of the scriptures themselves. 
And, and, and so this meant that if a pope or a major church council taught that the word that came from uh, the papacy was infallible or taught that um, we ought to uh, revere uh, the mother of Jesus even to the point of worshiping her or, or that saints could be prayed to or that salvation could be gained by good works or that, that uh, your access to heaven could be bought through purchasing indulgences, if, if, if councils and voices and authorities in the church said these things, they were not regarded as opinion. They were not regarded as things to be considered. Alongside of the scriptures, they were regarded as the word of God. The actual word of God, something to be obeyed. It was God speaking when these things were uttered. That was the, the belief of the time. Now you can kind of understand how this happened. Because when we go back to the scriptures, and especially to the passage that was often used and still is often used to um, ground this understanding of the infallibility of church tradition, of the opinion of the senior leadership of the church, when we go back and look at Matthew chapter 16, um, it sort of sounds like this is being authorized. Uh, we read there uh, of the encounter in which uh, Peter confesses that when Jesus says, who do, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, uh, you've been given this knowledge by our Father in heaven, Peter. You are the rock on which I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom, and I give you the power to, to whatever you bind or loose here on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven. It sounds, if you read that text, it sounds exactly like God is giving to Peter, though a little less clear whether this would have gone beyond Peter in some line of of, of succession, but it does sound like he's giving Peter unusual authority here, doesn't it? One of the cardinal rules of biblical interpretation is that you always interpret scripture with scripture. In other words, you need to look at every single teaching that we get from the scriptures in its biblical context. If it's a very uh, consistent theme in the scripture, it gets a great deal of weight. Uh, if it's the call to make God number one, if it's the call to love your neighbor as yourself, themes that get repeated again and again and again in scriptures, it gets major, major weight and focus. If the teaching you're meeting is, is singularly offered in just this one place or is an infrequent concept in other parts of the Bible, then you hold that teaching a little bit more carefully. You take it very seriously, but you look at it in the wider context because you may discover that there are other texts in the scriptures that balance out your appreciation for what that instruction is. And so by this rule, if, if Jesus had intended us to view the words of the apostle Peter or of his successors as infallible, uh, and, and that would be a, a pretty big idea, don't you agree? If he designed that a human being now was going to be the infallible voice of God. Um, if this was to be so, then you would, I think, expect to find this idea supported in other parts of, of the scriptures. Um, so, 
Let's just look at this text in context. In fact, let's go on and look at the, at the passage that immediately follows this one uh, in Matthew 16, which is essentially used uh, to suggest the infallibility of, of the church as a, uh, or, or the Pope um, as uh, a source or a voice uh, from God. So I'm gonna read from the text that comes right after that famous story. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. What do you make of that? Who is Peter? Is he the rock on which the church is built or the stumbling block that can get us all messed up? Is, is, is he to be the infallible leader or he's a person that is a tool of Satan? Is he a person that sees the way of the kingdom of God or is he a person occupied by human concerns? What do you make of these two texts side by side? I think they're a composite picture. I think this is a fantastic chapter of the Bible because I think what we're really being given here is an understanding that right from the very beginning of the church, Jesus is going to give big responsibilities, exciting opportunities, amazing capacity to, to popes, pastors, church councils, ordinary people like you and me who are going to prove pretty fallible again and again and again. Filled with potential, we're gonna stumble. Uh, filled with, with the authority God gives us, we're gonna sometimes misuse that authority. And yet God is still going to accomplish his long-range purposes, the providence that he intends for his creation through these clay vessels so long as they keep returning to the light of his word as long as they are semper reformanda, as we said last week, as long as they are always reforming. God can accomplish his purposes through the church, through every uh, strata of the church, as long as we stay open to the light of the word of God and, and to reforming as needed to get back on the path when we've wandered away. Are you with me so far? So, so at the very beginning of church history, there was an incredible alignment between what scripture said and what apostles like Peter, James, and John said. There was a very, very close alignment. But as you, you've learned over the years, if you've ever played, uh, how many of you ever played the childhood game Telephone? 
you know what can happen, right? As, as the parade gets longer, as the line of communication gets longer, you can expect a certain amount of what I would call message drift, if not mission drift, uh, over time. And as the parade of those players involved in this gets longer and longer, and especially if they're not required to go back and check what they're hearing and thinking against the original message itself, it's amazing how far that message can go from where it started. You know, it's not long before she sells seashells down by the seashore has become Shelly saves seaweed down at the big store. Right? Very, very different kind of message. So the human factor continually influences how people hear or define even God's word. And along the course of church history, the doctrine of scripture plus, uh, the idea that, uh, that um, the word of God is, is the Bible plus church tradition, that, that gets other permutations. As other branches of the Christian community, uh, the Anglicans and Wesleyans, for example, develop a whole doctrine of their own known as prima scriptura. And this understanding has it that your primary reference point should be scripture, uh, that should be where you start, but you should also pay attention to the wise voice of Christian tradition. Then you should integrate your reason and your common sense and your personal experience. And who knows, God might be speaking to you through nature or through an angel visitation or a vision that you get or your conscience or maybe even your digestive system at times. You need to consult all these things. Um, over time. And there are probably those of us in this room and within the sound of my voice who, who, who have that kind of prima scriptura notion that is the way we think about authority. But you can see how easy it would be to devise a religion that bore increasingly little resemblance to the gospel of the kingdom of God as it began when you have so many reference points now. And into this very messy milieu steps Martin Luther. And Luther essentially advocates for going back to the basics. And he and the other reformers in this time uh, champion uh, an, a doctrine they call sola scriptura. In other words, given the human propensity to corrupt our sense of God's will through sin or vanity or distractions of many kinds, uh, he says, let's just start measuring the quality of our behavior and our beliefs against Scripture alone. That's what sola scriptura means, Scripture alone. Sola scriptura is the doctrine that the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Um, and what this means is that preachers and popes and church councils and Bible commentators and popular websites or even a message that is allegedly from an apostle or an angel are not granted immediate authority in and of themselves. You may consider these things, and it's helpful to consider these different voices, but you're, with the doctrine of, of, of sola scriptura, you're, your immediate question is to test these things with the further question, does this square with the scriptures? Is this idea consistent with the way God has revealed 
his, his nature and his will in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Luther put it, uh, I think, helpfully in one of his essays, one of his most famous ones, entitled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. He says, what is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion. It's okay to hold that as an opinion, uh, but need not be believed. God's word, the scriptures here, shall establish articles of faith, and no one else, not even an angel, can do so. Now, this was a revolutionary thought at the time because what Luther was saying was that ordinary people like you and me have license to question what we hear from authorities and to test it against the scriptures. And and so suddenly people who start taking this idea uh, in begin to have the courage to stand up and question, as Luther had, the edicts and the mores and the structures that have been previously just presented to them as infallible truth that they had to follow. And this free thinking that starts kicking up now becomes the seed of movements of democracy and of human rights and of all kinds of changes in the society that come as a result of this notion. And I love the most famous quote of Luther of this time. He said, a simple layman armed with scripture is mightier than the mightiest pope without it. A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Now the challenge at this point in history I'm going to get to our point in history in just a moment. But at that point, this is the challenge. Most of the lay people in that world were not armed with Scripture. They did not have access to the Scriptures. Many people in the 16th century were not even literate. Or if they were literate, they were unfamiliar with the Latin language, and the Scriptures were essentially transmitted in a Latin translation called the Vulgate, Latin was what was spoken in the mass, in the church services of the day. And a lot of people came to those services and had no idea what was being said up at the front. Some of you are here today thinking to yourself, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. <laughs> and, and, and fewer people still even owned a copy of the Bible because they were expensive to to produce for centuries. And so for all of these reasons, the church's leadership had, in effect, a monopoly on interpreting what the Bible said, which parts of the Bible would be referenced. And many in the clergy, frankly, didn't trust the rank-and-file people of the church to handle the scriptures. Oh, they'll mess it up. They'll misunderstand it. Well, Luther was convinced otherwise. And so he did two striking things. First, he took the Latin Bible, the Vulgate translation, and he translated it into the vernacular, the common language of the German people that everybody spoke and could understand and a lot of people could read. He wanted common people, the the farm boy and the milkmaid, he said, to feel the words of Scripture in the heart to have the same experience of, of knowing God through the scriptures that he as an educated priest had. And secondly, Luther 
exploited the breakthrough technology that had happened just before this, the technology of Johannes Gutenberg and his movable type printing press, Luther exploited that technology to make thousands of copies of this very readable Bible. And, and as inexpensive copies of the scriptures and of Luther's and other reformers' writings began rolling off the presses, the ideas of the Reformation movement spread like a viral video. It just went everywhere. And for the first time since the disciples sat with Jesus, ordinary people had direct access to Jesus' words and could judge for themselves where the church and the state were in alignment with the word of God and where they had gone way off the path and needed to be corrected and challenged. And their conclusions about this the people's conclusions about all of this would hold the church and the state to account for their actions and would change the course of history and would develop many of the democratic institutions we know today and, and, and the push for education universally and, and, and human rights and the, the elevation of women and so many of the other God-blessed visions of human flourishing we, we take for granted. Let me say in closing that the issue today is whether we, who now have unprecedented access to the scriptures, who can have it on our phone with us wherever we go today, who have amazing variety of translations uh, to read the scriptures in, the big question is, will we value and use the treasure we have? And I want to be blunt about this because many people who sit in churches today are still over-relying on experts like me. I put that in quotations, experts. You might question that. But over-relying on the, the people up front to be the purveyors of the word, to be the interpreters of this word. There's a role for us to play here. But, but ultimately, the, the purpose of the scriptures is that all of us might have direct access to the voice of God and to the pattern of God in, in history and benefit from that. It is okay to listen to what people, priests, pastors, popes are saying, but have a relationship with the word of God yourself. I hope you do. I hope you have a relationship. So I wanna give you a specific challenge to test that relationship, to develop that relationship as you head out of here today. I wanna to challenge you to read at least one chapter of the Bible each day for just five days of this coming week. Take two days off <laughs> to meditate on what you read before. Maybe if you want a place to start, read the, start with the Gospel of John. And if you want to read more than one chapter because you're kind of getting into it, do it. But, but read, read the Bible for yourself. And, and as you're looking at the text, let me get, just give you some questions that might help you personalize and internalize what you're reading here. Here's the first question. Is there an example for me to follow in this particular passage? Is there something that, that, that if I did it might lead me closer to God? Um, is there a sin is there a bad variance off the path that I'm being encouraged 
to avoid in this particular text? Is there a promise or a trait of God's character uh, that I'm encouraged to hold on to, to claim for myself here? Is there a prayer that I'm reading here that I can personalize, make my own, and start using? Uh, is there a, a challenge that is being presented here uh, for me that I need to face? Is there a command, a direct instruction for me to start obeying in a, in a more intentional way? Is there a verse here I'm reading that I might even profit by memorizing so that I have it with me everywhere I go, even when I don't pull out my copy of the scriptures, it's, it's in me. I read of a man who once walked into a store and, and said that he wanted to buy a compass. And the owner asked him, which kind? And the man looked confused. I, I said, a compass. And the owner said, yeah, but there are two kinds. Do you want, do you want the kind that stays at one point and goes around in circles? Or do you want the kind that, that points the way? Many of us are stuck at one point in our lives, we're going around in circles. And God wants us to find the way. Our help lies in heaven and it and God's power, it lies in scripture alone, the reformers would tell us, for God's word is a lamp for our feet. God's word is a light unto our path. Would you please pray with me? Gracious God, we just thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for those who you inspired to write down a record of your providential work in salvation history. And we just ask, Lord God, for the will to, to take hold of this treasure and to take it into us that we might always have the light of your guidance, the light of your nature, the light of your call to guide us when we've wandered off the path. Help us to find that way, we pray, in these days to come. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.